Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast. I'm delighted to be joined in this episode by Heather Parry, who is a writer and reader based in Glasgow. Her work has been performed at the Edinburgh International Book Festival and has been published in many books and magazines, including The Spinning Fly and New Writing Scotland 35. Heather, in her own words, writes weird fiction and non-fiction. Well, she also edits books and is the co-founder and editorial director of Extra Teeth magazine. She also produces and co-presents Teenage Scream, a podcast about horror books with Kirsty Logan. And she chairs various literary events around Scotland, previously in person, but obviously virtual events in this, this day and age. And Heather is currently working on her second and third novels and a collection of short stories. Heather, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Thanks for that lovely intro, Paul. Now, I, when I just mentioned there that you're working on your, your second and third novels. So I was just curious uh, what's... What's the state of play with the first novel? That's an interesting question with some long answers. I, I think when I wrote that, I was thinking like, well, I've written my first novel. Now I will do these ones and sell this one. And what actually happened was um, I got an agent for my first novel. And there was a year period where the agent perhaps didn't have enough time for all the clients on his list. So we didn't really get any further with that. And then by the end of the year, I thought this isn't actually the book that I would want to bring out as my debut novel. So I took it off the table, as in, let's not try and sell this to anyone, and went away and wrote a completely different one about something I'd kind of been obsessed with for a couple of years. So I finished that, I think, late last year. And now I'm on the merry-go-round of getting an agent and those kind of things, which, as any writer will tell you, is the worst bit because <laughs> i think people don't realize that you know that way i think the commitment to to sit down and write a book is is incredible and, and you know that the kind of sense of achievement when you've got to the end of it and you've finished the book and you've worked on it and you've edited it to the point where you're really happy with it but that's only part of the story because then as you say you then have to try and find an agent and a publisher and it's it, it's probably a good thing that you and you'll have that experience of then being able to work on other things so that you don't become bogged down and when's this book going to get published when's this book going to get an agent Exactly. And I, um, I had some sort of mentoring sessions this past weekend and someone was asking about how they could get into novel writing. And I said, actually, the best thing is to write a novel and then just throw it away because it's not, it's not about your achievement. It's not about like, I want to write a novel and have written a novel. What you want to be is a good writer. And I mean, I wrote 100,000 words of a novel and just threw it away when I was about 28 because it's one of those strange things that you can't learn it apart from doing it and it's not going to be good like the first thing of anything you try is not going to be the best you can do it right if you sat me down at a pottery wheel and gave me some clay and asked me to make you a vase I don't know what would come out of that pole but it would not be the best vase I can make (laughs) it would probably be a sticky mess and I'd probably have to redecorate my house as well so the idea that you would like sit down and write an entire thing, it's a huge achievement. It's proving to yourself that you have the dedication, that you understand what the story is, that you understand what character is, but that will never be the best that you can do. And I think if you want to be a, a writer as a career, you want to be a novelist as your life is what you do. You want to put out the best. You don't want to just put out the thing you've done. So in a lot of ways, I feel very grateful because I did write the first one that I threw away and then I wrote another one that I then took off the table. But then the novel that I eventually sort of have now to take and to sell and these kind of things, I feel like it's actually good. (laughs) I feel like it's more what I want to do. But then, of course, there's that horrible thing when you're an artist of any kind and that you put all your passion and work into a thing and you love it and then you finish it. And then three weeks later, you hate it. (laughs) You start on something else and you can feel, hopefully, that you've improved. So people who've written a first novel, by the time you start writing the second one, you can already feel that that is going to be better than the first one, but you're probably still in the process of selling that one. And then when you do sell it, you know, you've got the editing process with your publishing uh, company's editor, and then you've got the printing process. So sometimes it's a year until it comes out, sometimes even longer. And by that point, you're so out of the headspace of having written it, 
you've maybe even finished your second one, like the first draft of it. So it's a weird push-pull of never quite feeling like you're doing the right thing at the right time or you're never quite proud of the thing you've finished. It's yeah. very strange. Because what I found really difficult is that in, in my work, we generally have to write a book in our department every year. So there's a kind of Celtic bring out a book every year. It's almost like for the Christmas market. So mm-hmm. we have a very, we have a very, very tight deadline to write the book, to edit the book and get the book out. But the thing is, we know it is definitely getting printed, it is definitely getting published and it's definitely going to sell. And that's all within the space of, sometimes it can be a really tight space of within six months. And it can be quite, that's quite hectic work. Mm-hmm. So as a result, you know, when you're doing that work, you know it's getting, there's going to be an end product and it's going to be finding readers. And then when you go to do your own work, as you say, you can put all that effort into writing 100,000 words. And then if, you, if you're happy with that at the end, it could be two years down the line before you know, it sees the light of day, which is, is quite, I find that quite, quite frustrating, I think, at times. Yeah, and I think it must be the same if you work in movies. It must, maybe not in the music industry now, because it's so much easier to get your music out there to people. But yeah, there's always like um, a lag in what people are seeing of your creative work. And I think you can get it as well if you're a short story writer, because you might finish your short story and then putting it forward for magazines. Like some of them will take, you know, nine months to get back to you, only to reject you. So then you've got to keep going and finding the right place for it. And it just takes so long. So I just had a, a short story come out with a magazine called New Gothic Review, who are amazing and have been so great to publish with. But I think I wrote that two years ago. So, <laughs> I feel like so a different like, lifetime ago. Yeah, especially with all the things that have happened this year. So yeah, it is always quite a strange one. I wonder what effect it has on the psychology of writers. Yeah, that's why I think it's always important, you know, once you finish something, even if you're setting it aside before you go back to it, you've, you've always got something else to be working on. I ended up self-publishing a couple of things. One was actually called Read All About It. It was just a book about charting my year of trying to read more books. Because I found I was, I was buying a lot of books and acquiring a lot of books, but I just wasn't reading enough. So I actually set a goal of trying to read more books and focusing on that. So I just ended up, originally it was a reading diary, but it turned into a book. But again, for that whole, I wasn't sure who would want to publish it. And it would have to, for me, it had to have an immediacy because it was just about the previous year. So I ended up just self-publishing it. But it just meant that also... It moved it off the table, as it were, and then I could move on to something else, and I had something there that just ended up giving it people's presence. So that's lovely. That must be that must come from your working process with the books that work. Then you need to kind of feel the real thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I suppose I know the the, the nature of how publishing works, but I, I, I sometimes wonder if they could speed up the process just even by a year. It would help. I mean, any industry is kind of full of secrets, right? And no one. No one who doesn't work in an industry really knows how it, how it all plays out. I couldn't tell you what the process is for making a film or, you know, building a house and things like that. But um, when you tell people you've finished a book or you've finished, like, a collection of short stories, you really regret it quite quickly because everyone will say, oh, when is it coming out? And you think, oh, no, it's not. I don't even have a date. <laughs> or, <laughs> so now I just, I just say, well, I finished a project. And I'm moving on to another one. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, a good, that's good advice for anyone. Yeah, just don't tell people you finished a novel, ever. And, and inviting you on the, the, the podcast, obviously, to talk about some of your favourite books from childhood all the way through your kind of literary journey, but I was having a, I had a wee look at your website and I noticed that last year, at the end of the you've done it for the last few years, at the end of the year you write a blog where you list, you know, kind of write about some of your favourite books that you've read throughout the year and then a list of all the books. I have to say it is absolutely impressive. I think last year it was, I think it was 170 was the, the total of the books. Which, uh, which is an incredible amount of books to read in the course of a year. Is, is that something that you, know, you spend a lot of time reading or are you reading two or three books at the same time? It's just, obviously, it's, it's a love that, that you have of, of reading. I think the thing to remember is that I don't have a proper job. So <laughs> everyone is always like, how do you read that many? And it's like, well, it is kind of what I get paid to do in so many ways because as well as being a writer, I'm a ghostwriter. Um, I run a podcast, so we have to read you know, at least a book a month for the podcast. And then when we're doing the seasons, we have to read 10 more books as well. I, you know, chair a lot of events. So I have to read books for that. Obviously, when you're writing, you read a lot of books for research. So it's something that I struggle with being able to just sit and read all day and think, well, I am actually getting paid for this because it doesn't feel like a real job, but it is just a monstrous amount of books. And it always shocks me. But to be honest with you, um, I had a similar thing to you where I had to sort of consciously come back to reading more books. So I was always a, a voracious reader when I was a kid. 
And when I went to university, I did um, philosophy and English literature. So not a creative writing degree, but you know, the critical side of literature. Um, and then when I was 21, I moved abroad and I ended up staying in, in the not UK part of the world <laughs> in various different places for six years. Um, and for the last three of that, I was living in Latin America. And it's actually really hard to get English language books there. And I did have, I think someone gave me a secondhand Kindle. So I did have sort of access to ebooks, but I don't love reading ebooks. I can't concentrate as much. And I just got out of the habit of reading because, you know, I could go out and buy English language books, but it would be like Dan Brown and it would be $25. No, no dissing Dan Brown. He sold a hell of a lot of books, but it just wasn't quite what I wanted to read. So when I moved to Scotland, which I think is now five or six years ago, I had to make a concerted effort. I had to say, well, you know, as Stephen King says in On Writing, which is one of, still one of the best books I think on writing, you, you can't be a writer if you're not a reader. You can't, you don't have the tools to write if you don't read almost constantly. Um, and I think that's true. So yeah, I, had to, I think I set myself a goal of 50 books um, maybe six years ago. And, you know, that's not too bad. That's like a little less than a book a week. And you can get some really short ones, you know, so I, didn't, I think I was probably cheating <laughs> quite badly that first year. Um, and yeah, it's just built up from there. As my kind of freelance life has shifted a little bit and there's more need for um, all types of like research reading in my life. But yeah, I mean, a lot of it is just for sheer pleasure. Yeah. Like I don't watch a lot of telly, although since lockdown, we've been watching kind of a lot more. <laughs> I read when I walk as well, which I think is quite obnoxious. But <laughs> you, you read a physical book while you're walking. Yeah, it just makes it curious. <laughs> I suppose just as much as being on your phone. I've developed so, a bit of a sixth sense for who's coming um, and what I might stand in. I do stand in puddles a little bit too much, but it, I'm, I get quite bored. I get quite like um, mentally bored on long walks, but I do love walking to places. So if I'm just reading, it makes it go quick and I'm getting through something I want to be getting through. So. Uh, well, well, given you know how, how much of a voracious reader obviously you were and, and you are now, I'm quite interested, and I'm really interested in, in the choices that you've made today. So if I can take you right back to the first choice, and that is your favourite book from childhood, and the one that you chose is The Magic Faraway Tree by Enid Blyton. What, what was it about that book that's, that stayed with you? You know, I actually had to ask my mum what my favourite book was as a kid, because I have such a terrible memory, honestly. I, my memory of my own life is absolutely awful. Probably because I got too many books in there. That's probably erasing my whole life. But I really used to love both the Faraway Tree, tree series and the Wishing Chair. They were kind of similar. I suppose they're kind of like a really simple literary conceit in the same way that Mr. Ben is, and that you have a situation where the characters within the story can have completely different experiences in every episode or book and yeah the faraway tree I suppose it's just like it's got that magical sense and the idea that kind of anything could happen I don't think they stand up now because I think they're quite awfully racist you know as is so much from the kind of like 50s and 60s and basically all of the 20th century now we look back on it with more critical eyes but actually my mum sent me a picture and I was a picture of me when I was in bed as a kid clutching the worst witch strikes again so yeah, I used to really love that as well. And I think that spoke to me because it's the little girl that every little girl who reads books wants to believe she is. You know, she's, she's the one clutching her book at school um, and she's a little bit geeky and a little bit gawky, but essentially has like a good heart. And though she might not be like the most cool kid in junior school or whatever, she will grow into herself. And <laughs> I think every, every slightly sort of geeky little girl really loved Enid and those books. Because it was quite interesting, I mean, again, when I was just having a read-up beforehand, I mean, it's phenomenal. She sold something like over 600 million copies of her, her books, which is just, it's beyond extraordinary. But it is interesting, you, you mentioned it there, in terms of the language, the subject matter. I think even, which I was quite interested in, there was even like some articles back in the 60s that were critical of her, particularly in terms of the kind of racist element within her books, and I'm not sure, I mean, even that Magic Faraway Tree, apparently they've changed the, the names of the characters. Um, oh, because it used to be um, Dick and Fanny. Yeah, and so it, it. It's, it's, it's Franny and Rick. Okay, because don't take Dick and Fanny away from us. Yeah. I feel like we should, we should be allowed to have Dick and Fanny. <laughs> so it's like, you, you kind of think it's more innocent times, but even I think there's a character in it where I think there's corporal punishments, I think, 
uh, which yeah. again they've kind of reduced that as well and it's you know I, I don't know if the punishment is just more like I don't, I, I'm not really sure but they've, they've taken the corporal punishment element out of it as well so they're, they're of another time I suppose I think. They are really and I mean they were I you know was born in the late 80s so they were they were already of a different time when I was reading them. I suppose my mum liked them and she would that's why she picked them but yeah it's weird because there are all these really horribly problematic elements but like you say she was kind of wildly successful and <laughs> I'm actually really interested in Agatha Christie at the minute as well. There's a Northern Irish writer called Jan Carson and she's doing a year with Agatha Christie where I think she reads a book a week and then she writes a short story on the first inside cover inspired by the book and Agatha Christie is one of these people who's so wildly successful, sold like hundreds of millions of copies of her books but we don't hold her in this kind of literary esteem which is really strange isn't it and I think must be kind of like a minimizing of the achievements of women who are really incredibly popular however I will say Enid Blyton crops up in places that you wouldn't expect so do you know um, V for Vendetta by Alan Moore the comic book that's actually references the faraway tree so V actually reads it to Evie you know the girl that he sort of I want to say kidnaps <laughs> let's say takes as his protege is maybe a, a nice, nice euphemism for that but one of the books in the original comic is actually called the land of do as you please which is one of the lands in the magic faraway tree as well i mean i remember growing up and reading you know like the famous five secret seven it was interesting that because i was having to think about it that they didn't stick with me to to the point that would be my favorite book from childhood so i don't remember reading them to my kids when they were we so i, I think that kind of it moved on almost and I'm not sure if I went back to them whether it would I would be slightly surprised at the kind of content of them. It's funny isn't it like I used to really my dad loves trains so we got a lot of the Thomas the Tank Engine books and I don't really think of them as my favorite and it's like where did I did I not engage with them in the same way was I just sort of humoring my dad <laughs> when I was like two or three years old. It's funny yeah I don't really think of like I don't have a book from childhood that I would go and read now as a comforting read. Like I didn't, I never liked Harry Potter. I got the first one um, and I couldn't finish it. And I think I was 11 years old at the time. So it just didn't really speak to me. I'd kind of like, I wasn't in my fantasy period anymore, which I had when I was a kid. So yeah, I kind of don't have that one thing that I can go back to. A lot of people just reread the Harry Potter se- series over and over again, don't they? Is their yeah. kind of like happy place. Interesting about my, my daughters, that's her, that would be her favourite books from childhood. But I think she was a wee bit younger when mm-hmm. she started reading them. So, you know, that way, that idea of when you're a kid, if you're reading characters that are just slightly older than you, it's more appealing because it's almost a kind of hint of what's ahead of you. So I think that's maybe part of the reason why the, the characters were always just a wee bit older than her. So I think that's what engaged her. Weirdly, that's what we talk about on my, the podcast that I do with Kirsty, as you mentioned, Teenage Scream. We reread um, point horror books from our youth. So point horror... The characters are usually between like 15 and 17 and I kind of would have been reading them at about 13 or 14 and um, it is funny that you're like they're driving cars you know because it was America as well so they all got cars at 16 you're like oh my god they're so wildly adult and maybe I'll be like that in two years and but then of course they're all like murdering each other because it's a horror series but that's a really funny one as well because the gender politics in those books is really bad you know even though they're only kind of early 90s so 30 years old um, and we kind of like make a joke on the podcast about is R.L. Stein a white supremacist because all of his young girl characters seem to have very white blonde hair and very blue eyes <laughs> and they're characters of color I mean I can think of like two maybe in you know we've done seven series of the podcast now and you'd never really get explicitly queer characters of course you never really get characters of color and everyone is kind of just rich as a standard thing. Like they all have BMWs, they're all driving BMWs at 16 years old, which I wouldn't be allowed a BMW now and I'm almost 35. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I suppose they would be my, my little, little kind of happy comfort reads, but I also kind of hate quite a lot of them. <laughs> they're really badly written as well. We go from your childhood book and, and I really love this jump from Enid <laughs> Blyton and the Magic Faraway Tree to your, your favourite book from kind of teenage student formative years. And I'm, I'm not sure if anybody could guess that we're going to jump from the Magic Faraway Tree to American Cycle by Brett Easton Ellis. And that is quite a, a jump. Um, I didn't realise how ridiculous that was until you pointed <laughs> it out. Yeah, but it is quite the leap. So I, I write quite dark 
things most of the time. And I kind of always have been interested in that. I think if anyone in your life writes horror or has written horror or anything, they might have had a similar thing to me where you read Goosebumps and then you read Point Horror and then you graduated to Stephen King. And Stephen King, you know, Carrie and those sort of books, when you're kind of like 15, 16, 17, they're just great. I mean, you know, Stephen King's written a lot and he's written a lot of crap, but (laughs) Carrie is like a really brilliant novel. It's just so good. And things like Misery and The Shining, of course, like really brilliant, but they really start to explore the underbelly of people and of society. And then from there, I just kind of started reading more and more dark stuff. And what I realize about myself now is that I love books that are, I call it doing a thing. So they're kind of like high concept and they will follow that to the end, to right to their logical conclusion, even if it's a kind of mad journey to get there. So have you ever read American Psycho? Yeah, I absolutely love the book. I, I, think oh, it's, nice. I think it's an absolutely extraordinary novel. Yeah, and I, I think sometimes the, the violence, the, the kind of real shocking violence within it, I think sometimes deflects from what I think is an incredible book, just a, you know, a real a kind of critique of that time and that place and those people. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not convinced, actually, that even though the, the, the descriptions of the killings, you know, Patrick Bateman massacring all these people is just horrific, I'm not convinced that they actually within the novel they take place. I'm not sure if it's all within his head. You see, I love that. I love books that don't give you an easy answer and leave that room open for interpretation. Like, I think of myself as quite an unshockable person in many ways, because I do tend to just consume this content. And especially when I was a teenager, I would just consume this horrible content. And I suppose I was trying to find my boundaries of what I found too much. And American Psycho is right on the edge. It's the only book that's ever made me feel sick. And I can remember exactly where I was it's the scene where, with the rat, and I won't say any more than that, just for anyone who's not read it or might be eating. And I was on a Southwest train from Surrey to London, and I thought I was going to be sick. And I suppose that's about a female body, so maybe I was relating to it in that way, because you, you, know, you just highly empathise with the person. And yeah, I just, I love, it's such a critique, it's such a brilliant critique of 80s culture in the US and the UK as well. I mean, think of that's like the Thatcherite Reagan era, isn't it? It's the 80s cocaine-fueled finance kind of boom era. But it's kind of also what we're still living under in a lot of ways, this kind of like unbridled, unharnessed power of the rich. And he isn't really writing about violence done to each other. He's writing about violence done by a system. I just love, I would rather read a book that makes me feel sick than a book that makes me not think about anything at all. Uh, my, taste, my taste is probably quite awful. And I really have to be careful what books I recommend to which people because they just, a lot of people just wouldn't want to read it. But to me, American Psycho, it was like, look, you can do this. And it's, it's written with this kind of like pure anger as well. Like you can feel he's really mad. He's really mad at the things he's writing about. And Brett Easton Ellis is really funny now. He's kind of like a weird old curmudgeon. And he actually has a podcast. And if you ever listen to it, it has all these kind of like icons of, the 90s, like um, Marilyn Manson and Rob Zombie and people like that. And they sound kind of like moody old dads (laughs) who kind of aren't flavor of the month anymore. But they all did such kind of shocking things at the time and they pushed culture. And I actually ended up writing my dissertation about American Psycho. (laughs) That's what kind of student I was. What what struck me when when I saw the the choice, because one of the things I always used to say to people is, if you pick up American Psycho, it's impossible just to flick through the pages and find the horrific parts where Patrick Bateman's massacring someone. Because they just, the way he's written it, is it just, you know, one minute he's talking about, you know, a critique of Phil Collins or some other bland 80s, but in a really kind of pretentious, a highbrow way, or the, you know, he's obsessing about what suit or who's got the best business card. And then you turn the page and then it, bang, it's absolute and utter, it's utterly shocking. The other thing is, I, I wasn't sure, again, reading it as, as a woman, because the violence against the, the female victims of, as I say, I'm not convinced that they're anything more than in his head, but I wasn't sure how shocking that would be, you know, to read that as a, as a woman. Well, I think, I think you can be quite reactive to it in a kind of, I can't believe a man is writing all this violence against women, but the reality is that the violence does come down on women. The violence, violence of, like, unchecked capitalism comes down on women 
in a way that it doesn't come down on men. Of course, it also comes down on men, but it puts women's bodies and women's labor and women's spaces at risk or, you know, it capitalizes on them. And I think I, I don't have a problem with seeing violence against women when it is a critique of what produces that violence. If it's gratuitous for the sake of it, and you can really tell, I think, when it is, when someone's just writing about mutilating women because they want to mutilate women. I think you can tell, and I don't think American Psycho is doing that because it is, it is a critique of the system. And this is the kind of fiction I love where it doesn't let you just glide through it. It kind of like takes your face and like pushes it into the situation and forces you to look at it. And I think that's what American Psycho is doing. Of course, it is awful to read about that kind of violence, but it's, it's in service of something. So for me, I mean, I, all of my favorite books, they all force you to look at a thing and engage with that thing. So one of my favorite books is called The People in the Trees by Hanya Yanagihara. In fact, I would say that is my favorite book. And it is just horrible. It's about a white is he a medical doctor? He's like part of a medical, he's the medical person on an expedition to an island in the South Pacific. I say expedition in inverted commas, of course, because people live on this island. But it is a critique of um, colonialism. So very much like Lolita, which is another one of my favorite books, you have this horrible white male main character who does inconscionable things, absolutely terrible things to people around him. And it always tends to be women. It always tends to be children always tends to be people of color. But the reality is that happens and these things do happen. And I like fiction that forces you to engage with that because then once you're engaged with it, you then have to start fighting against it. I think the way I understood colonialism after reading that book was completely changed. And I know that's not for a lot of people. <laughs> this is why I wouldn't like, recommend the people in the trees to everyone. But I just love books that do that because they change you. Because, you know, you were talking about, so obviously American Psycho's that critique of you know, 1980s excess. Mm. But I, read, I read a book this year called The Big Shot by oh, yeah. Michael Lewis. And that, that is taken right up to the kind of subprime catastrophe of 2008, you know, that, the collapse. And what is shocking about that book is that A, the excess of, you know, 20, 30 years on from American Psycho, it's, as you say, it still goes on. And even though they cause this absolute catastrophe that the rest of us all have to pay for, you know that it's still going on mm-hmm. because they, these people are just untouchable. They just keep going on and we pay for you know, whatever mistakes they make. Yeah, I really liked that book. Um, I've gone on something of a kind of economic self-education in the last year because, you know, when politicians talk about things and you kind of know it's crap, but you're like, I need to know why that's crap <laughs> and what the actual facts are. So yeah, I read that a couple of years ago. I really liked it. And I thought it was a really good explainer of how things had gotten to that point. But there's also a book called Stolen by Grace Blakely, which I read this year. It takes you through the whole period. So it would take you from the 80s and the things that were changed and the things that were put in place. Or even further back, you know, the decoupling of the the currency from the gold standard is basically what put us on the road to where we are now. And that just explains absolutely everything from kind of Thatcher to now. And... I want everyone to read that book and get really mad <laughs> about it with me, and then we'll have a revolution. Because it's because what what struck me about the big shot, and it's almost like to understand austerity, you have to read that book. But what struck me about austerity is one day we were told we were in austerity, so we all we all have to pay the financial cost of it, and then one day somebody just stands up and says we're out of austerity, and there didn't seem to be any difference. It was like it's all smoke and mirrors, and actually, and given what's been going on just now in terms of financial impact of COVID and furlough schemes, at some point down the line, somebody's going to stand, stand up, whether they call it austerity or something else. Again, it'll just be a way of punishing or, or making ordinary people pay for mistakes of others. And I bang on about this on Twitter all of the time. In the 1980s, in fact, it was Thatcher. I know I'm a cliched Yorkshire woman, so I can have Thatcher all the time, but everything really was her fault. She sort of promoted this idea that a country's economy is like a household economy and you have to tighten your purse strings and, you know, we can only spend what comes in. It's total rubbish. That is not how an economy works whatsoever. The treasury isn't counting every penny we pay to them in tax to budget for what they pay for. They create money. They do it all the time. You know, they gave billions of pounds to the banks in 2008. This, wasn't, this didn't come out of tax money. It just, they, they create the money. And yet it's used to do things like, you know, the idea that we're going to all have to pay back furlough money. That's not how it works at all, but it is 
it is what they try to push. So this is why everyone should read, maybe not American Psycho, but... <laughs> <laughs> so, so the recommendation also is stolen then by Grace Blakely. Yes, I love that one. But The Big Shot is great too, as you said. Yeah. Well, you're listening to Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest, Heather Parry. And having gone from American Psycho, Heather, we're now on to a book that you recommend to anyone. And the book that you've chosen, there was a couple and one that just made it above the other. Uh, both book a prize winners, and the ones you've gone for is The Remains of the Day by Kazuo Ishiguro. I really struggled with this question, as you can see by the list of like five I sent you. <laughs> it's like being on Desert Island Discs. It's like really agonizing to choose. But I think The Remains of the Day is good because like I said, a lot of my favorite fiction, I would not give to my mom or my grandma or you know even just friends who are of a slightly more sensitive disposition to me. I wouldn't give those books to them because it wouldn't be right for them. The Remains of the Day is kind of like in my top 10 of just perfect novels. Like it sets out what it's going to do, it does it. It's got warmth, it's got heart, it's got character and it's saying something about the world outside of itself. And The Remains of the Day is about, well, it's written from the perspective of um, a butler in like an old sort of English stately home. And the stately home has been bought by an American guy. So it's kind of, I think it's prior to, just prior to the Second World War. And it's so much about like longing and the class system in the UK, you know, specifically England, and like the loss of things and regret. And you know, that kind of, you know, those universals that we all at some point think, well, what if, you know, what if I had said this? What if I hadn't held on to that emotion? And it's just honestly, truly brilliant. Like I'm not a fan, I'm not a huge fan of Kazuo Ishiguro's um, other works. Like I'm not a fan of Never Let Me Go, which is really popular. It just wasn't quite my thing. But The Remains of the Day, it's like, it's just sort of achingly beautiful. You know, those where I, I would read it anytime. If you just handed me a copy right now, I would remove everything else off my to-do list today and read it. But it also is dealing with politics. So the guy who's in service sort of truly believes in his position. He really truly believes that like the people above him are better than him. And you are shown as a reader that that's just not true at all. And that he has lost so much in his life by believing this kind of class lie and having lost himself so much in his role as like a servant. And you can also see the way he tries to excuse those people above him. Again, above him is in inverted commas there. As they kind of like side to the right and start to become kind of like fascist sympathizers, which is of course really relevant to now. <laughs> I mean, it's relevant to all of history in the UK. We are, we're so always told that people are above us um, and we exist on a certain level. And we're also sold the lie that we might get there, which is just not the case. We will never be the Reese Moggs. You know, we will never be the Boris Johnsons. We will never get to be prime minister, those kind of things. And that butcher just does it so well, but it's so subtle and it's just so kind of like luscious and beautiful. And I think that's the kind of book that anyone can enjoy. It's funny, like, I, don't, I don't think anybody would aspire to be Jacob Rees-Mogg. You know, <laughs> I, 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 know I know what you mean in terms of that, that kind of culture and, and that kind of class. Interesting, because it was named, I think, last year, BBC ran a, I don't know if it was a poll or a list, the 100 most influential novels. They didn't, they didn't put them numerically, they just listed the 100, and that was one of the, the 100. My other kind of potential for this question is a Booker Prize winner, yeah. um, and it's Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel. And that's another one that like, I really did not think I would like Hilary Mantel. I had really judged a book by its cover, and I thought, you know, she's a middle-aged lady, I don't tend to read a lot of, like, middle-aged lady fiction, you know, in inverted commas, being hugely judgmental and to my own detriment, because what was I missing out on? And I thought, also thought I don't like historical fiction. Like, I, I often joke that I just kind of don't really care about the past. You know, <laughs> political past, yes. But like kings and queens and stuff like that, God, I just couldn't care less. And this is all about Henry VIII. But my God, it's so good. It's so good. Have you read it? Yeah, I've read the first two. I've got the, the Mirror and the Light. On, on this never-ending pile of books to read. But what I was thinking of doing is I'd quite like to go back and just read the three of them back to back and just kind of get yeah. that sense. Almost like a kind of, it's just a big giant, one big giant book and just get that experience of, if I could set a wee bit of time aside and just do that. Yeah, I was thinking of doing the same thing actually because I just read The Mirror and the Light. At the beginning of lockdown, I was really struggling to read fiction and The Mirror and the Light is the thing that actually got me back into it because you could just sort of 
lose yourself in this giant sea of characters. Like there's, there's almost too many people in the book, but if you just let it wash over you, it's really enjoyable. But yeah, Wolf Hall, I just couldn't, I couldn't believe how good it was. Hilary Mantel is one of those people that I sit there and I could cry because of how good she is and how I will never be that good. (laughs) The beginning, I I still remember the first page of that book and I really, my memory is really bad for details, but I still remember it's written from Cromwell's perspective when he's lying on the floor and he can see the bottom of his dad's shoe while his his dad is like giving him a kicking. I I will not spoil it, I promise, Paul, but the end of the mirror and the light ties so neatly with that. And yeah, I just, I would never have thought I would have enjoyed historical fiction, but it's not really about history. It's about power and it's about tyranny and it's about human relationships. My mum is not kind of like a reader of my kind of books, but at the beginning of lockdown, I bought her, well, no, I recommended she should get uh, Wolf Hall. And then she read it and loved it and immediately gave it to my dad and then lent it to my sister-in-law. And then she read the second one and then she read The Mirror and the Light much quicker than I did. And I just got this text saying, oh God, Heather, I was in tears at the last page. <laughs> so I feel like anyone could really get on with it, even if they wouldn't expect themselves to be a Hilary Mantel reader. Because I always wondered as well, the pressure on the, the Booker Prize judges to make a trilogy of awards, because obviously the first two won the Booker Prize and they, they never even made it onto the shortlist, which again, must have been, they must have been aware of the outside pressures of, well, oh, it's the first two, how can you not at least shortlist it? I think they maybe learned a little bit from last year where they put Margaret Atwood, you know, they, they made Bernadine Evaristo share her award with Margaret Atwood. And I haven't read the Testaments, but the opinion that I've heard is that it's just not as good as The Handmaid's Tale. Whereas everything I've heard about Girl, Woman, Other is that it's just an incredible, untouchable book. So I feel that there was some pressure. They felt some pressure to put you know, the two of them forward when I think perhaps they should have just put Bernadine Evaristo forward, especially as the first black woman yeah. to win the book and she should have just had it on her own. Because I, I read um, Doc's Newbury Report. I remember at the time the publishers of that were quite a small publishers and I think you have to, you have to spend a bit of, quite a bit of money if you get shortlisted in order to get through the whole rigmarole. And, and what annoyed them was that on the one hand, there's exposure for their author and their book, but on the other hand, they kind of felt that they'd abided by the rules, but ultimately the awards in terms of Margaret Atwood, it was almost like an award for her body of work and for what she'd done, as opposed to that specific book, which is not the terms of the... Yeah, it was was Galley Beggar, who really, you know, they've published some groundbreaking work. For for such a small independent press, they punch so high above their weight. They do amazing things. This could be a whole other podcast, but there's a lot of things around, like, prizes and literary prizes that really hew towards like the big publishers so it actually makes it really hard for indies to get in there and I think they had like a printing bill of like 40 grand or something just because of the amount you have to produce when your book is on the shortlist and of course for a small publisher that's just an enormous amount of money for you know HarperCollins it might not be it might just be a drop in the ocean but it's like when you put a film forward for an Oscar as well isn't it something like you have to pay 25 grand just to put it forward and again it's these small things of power isn't it that occur along the way and everyone else kind of in the public doesn't know that this is how it works yeah. but it always does push power to where it already resides rather than letting in other people we are on to the fourth question and that is from a book that you can recommend to anyone it's a book that you couldn't be paid to read again and the book that you've chosen is the road by Cormac McCarthy and I'm really interested to find out why you chose this book because you see, when you mentioned there about uh, you read Wolf Hall and you, you know, Hilary Mantel, you think, I'm never going to, I'm never be able to get to that level. I, I, re- I read The Road and I've reread it and I think I could never write as well as that. So I was quite interested. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I find it really boring. It, I don't mind grim literature. I really don't mind dark things. And I don't mind things that are written without a sense of hope. But there was something about this man. It was. It was really stylistically bleak as well as thematically bleak. So he writes in this really kind of pared back prose, very sparse writing, which I'm fine with. But when it's coupled with a kind of bare plot and not exactly flowery characterization, I just felt like it was a dirge. I felt like it was an effort for me to like turn every single page. You know, I don't, I don't need to read how many times they open a tin of beans. You know, it just... <laughs> 
maybe it's just not quite for me. Every time I say this, people say, yeah, but you need to read other Carmack McCarthy books. You know, he was, he was really doing it for a reason. He, he doesn't write like that in all the rest of his time. But there's so many books, Paul. I, have, I must have 200 unread books in this house. I'm a writer and my partner is a bookseller. So we get new books every week. I will never have enough time in the rest of my life to read all the books in my house currently and all the books that I will subsequently buy as well. So I'm just not going to go back to Cormac McCarthy and maybe I will, maybe I'm really missing out. I'm sure in some ways I am. Because it's one of the things that I love about this podcast and these questions because it's interesting that having done it for a wee while now, sometimes a book that somebody chooses in the category that they would recommend to anyone someone else chooses it as a book they couldn't be paid to read again or vice versa. And because because it's the whole point of all art is subjective. So how you mm. approach it, what effect it has on you, it's different for you than it is for me. Because I would have I had the completely opposite uh, reaction to, to the book. I absolutely I mean I, I absolutely love the book and it's it's a book that I've often bought and given to people as presents. And it's a terrible thing to, I mean I don't know if you do this, but you know that sometimes when you have a real emotional investment in a book that you absolutely love. There's two or three books that I do it with. This one, The Cone Gatherers with Robin Jenkins is another one that if I give it to people, I feel really bad, like I slightly judge them if they come back and they don't love it as much as I do. I think I've been able to kind of decouple myself from needing that reaction from people because, I, like I say, I know like a lot of people listening to this even will be like, American Psycho was the worst thing I've ever read. It was gratuitous and bleak and over the top and I think that's fine it is it is all those things but it's doing those things in service of a point which is why I like it and you know people would say the same thing about Lolita people are like it's just disgusting but again I think it's doing a thing and I love also love Geek Love by Catherine Dunn which a lot of people would just be like what is this bizarre like world she's concocted but they're the things I love so I don't really I kind of expect people not to like them I think when I think I've understood what a person will like and I give them a book and it's not accurate, I feel like bad that I've put them through it. Do you know that way? Because I'm always conscious of it when I'm asking people, particularly for a book that you'd recommend to anyone. And it's quite a, you know, if somebody says to you, can you give me something to read or what would you think I should read? Once you start thinking about it, there's a responsibility because you try to think what would they enjoy or what did I enjoy and is is there a crossover? Because as as I say, no two people are going to approach the book with the the same attitude and experiences even. I, that's why I struggled so much with the book you would recommend to anyone. Like, I really love Gabriel Garcia Marquez and I, I would hope that his books really speak to everyone. You know, like, I remember being breathless at the end of 100 Years of Solitude as in like, I, I don't think I took a breath for the last three pages and then I could have cried. And The Autumn of the Patriarch by him is just one of those books that it does so much in such a short space of time and speaks to kind of universal constants I think which is really good but I also think a lot of people just won't like his style especially people who maybe grew up in an entirely different part of the world you know what I mean you sometimes can't access culture uh, from other people's cultures in the same way as you do your own but yeah I don't know what it is about the road and I don't judge people if they like it there are some books that I really <laughs> hate and when people tell me they like it I sort of want to go I don't understand how you've come to that position because I, I cannot fathom what you like about it one of, the, one of those actually is The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. That is the one book, book that if I see it on someone's bookshelves, I do judge them. And I almost <laughs> want to ask why they've got it. But I think that's just me being horribly pretentious. I actually read the, when I was talking about doing the, the Read All About It book in my year, I've tried to read more books. So one, so one of the months that I, re, I tried to just read trilogies, and one of the trilogies I read was the Comet McCarthy trilogy, uh, all the Pretty Horses, uh, The Crossing, I can't remember what the third one was. And they were, they are completely different from the road because they're, they're set between the kind of Texas and Mexican border and they're completely, they're almost a kind of, to an extent, like cowboy uh, novels. Even the way that they're written is completely different. But I, I read them having already read and, and loved The Road anyway, so mm-hmm. I was probably predisposed to reading Cormac McCarthy. Because it's interesting, I, I was speaking to... An interview with uh, Kathy Redsenbrink just a few weeks ago in the podcast. Oh yeah, I know her. And she, you know, she's just brought out a memoir, Dear Reader, that's talking about how books have played such an important part in her life at various points of, of highs and particularly lows in, in her life. And it's, a, it's an amazing book, but it was also, it's all about rereading books. And just that point of you were saying, you've got so many books waiting to be read. I'm the exact same. that I always feel slightly 
guilty when I, if I go back and reread the book because I think, well, there's another book I've not read yet that I should really be concentrating on. Yeah, I feel the same. But I then try and do give myself space because, you know, some books I read 15 years ago and I, I can't even access what they're really about anymore. And, and I sometimes think, is my memory of them different to what's actually in them? Or you change as a person. So maybe go back and see how the new you appreciates that book. But I will say, like, I think this question is difficult for me because there are a lot of books that people love that I won't read. Like, I really hate Charles Dickens. And in fact, I got into, I got told off in a university class once by my teacher for saying it was really dull. And I don't like Harry Potter and I wouldn't read Lord of the Rings if you paid me. I, I know it's not for me. I know it's not for me. And there are some things that you have to read at a certain time. And if you don't, it's never going to be the same again. You know, it's like Star Wars. If you don't really see it when you're a kid, you're not going to be sort of awestruck and all these kind of things. And maybe Cormac McCarthy's in that list of people I just don't get. As I say, I think that's, I, I think that's the beauty of books. It's the beauty of films. It's the beauty of music. That it, it would be pretty boring if we all agreed on the exact same thing. There's also an element of how, how do you know that you're better than some people if you, you just trust them. <laughs> so we're on to the, the last question. Um, that is uh, either the last book you read or the book you're currently, you're currently reading. And uh, the book you've chosen, I'm not sure if they've got the pronunciation of the title of the book. Is it, is it Lote or is it Lote? Oh, I've just been saying Lote, but that's a Lote good question. By Shola von Reinhold. This question is also ridiculous for me because I keep track of all the books I read on Goodreads because otherwise I just can't remember. And I'm currently reading 20 books according to Goodreads. And some of them are like... Long-term projects, like I'm reading a couple of like Karl Marx books, which are, you know, enormous, like 1,200 page, very small writing, very intense idea tomes. So I just kind of dip in and out of them. Some of them I'm reading for the novel that I'm about to rewrite. So they're sort of like, I'm halfway through them, I need to go back. But then also I just have a ridiculous amount of books that I'm reading it all the time. <laughs> so yeah, Lote is one that I've been reading. I tend to read quite quickly most of the time, but this is one that's been a really sort of gentle read in the background for me. It's really fantastic. So it's by Jacaranda Press as well. They were this really diverse um, publisher, indie publisher. And it's kind of like, it's an exploration of the way that modernism has underrepresented black people throughout, like, you know, like you won't find many black modernist poets in the canon and that kind of thing. So it's both an exploration of the erasure of those people, but kind of like a, a rebuilding of like a black modernist canon. And it's really queer and it's eccentric is the best way to describe it. I think it's like, I've, I have no idea what's going to happen in the rest of the book. I couldn't even guess. It's like fun and it's doing exactly what it wants to do. And it's, you know, of course, far outside of my experience. I don't even really know that much about like modernist poets. So I feel like I'm being educated at the same time as I'm being really entertained. Um, and it's just a really beautifully comedically written book as well. Like there's so much to it. I really would like recommend it. It's just such an interesting read. And I'm also reading The Earthwire by Joel Lane, which has just come out from Influx Press, who are another indie publisher. And he wrote, well, I don't I actually don't know if he wrote novels because I've just got two short story collections and they're reissues. And he has written this kind of like northern grim surrealism. It's like kind of post-Thatcherite queer short stories that have a big dose of surrealism in them. So they're my kind of two very polar opposite books <laughs> that I'm reading right now. But they kind of are escapist in a way. Like in the Joel Lane book, there's a story about a guy who's like sprouting wings, which is really beautiful. And there's a lot of kind of like gay longing in it as well, which is really nice to read from a Northern male writer because you don't often get that. And Lote is just going on this like eccentric journey and taking you along with it kind of like regardless of what you want or you expect from the book, it's taking you exactly where it's going to go. So yeah, I've really been enjoying getting lost in them. And obviously the Joel Lane book is short stories, so it's little kind of nighttime chaos for me, whereas Lote is a thing I keep picking up when I have kind of a couple hours with no work to do. Because I was, you know, I mentioned right at the start about, you know, the amount of books that you would read over mm -hmm. the course of a year for a whole variety of different reasons and a whole, whole variety of different subjects. Because I'm very much a one book at a time person. I don't know if my mind can only... By and large, can only focus on one book. Do you find it quite easy then? Or sometimes you, because you've got so many books on the go, sometimes you go to a different book because of maybe how you're feeling or the time of the day or emotions or just what you feel that reading it. Is that how you're able to kind of juggle so many at the same time? 
Yeah, I think I'm finding the main difference between me and you. I'm very scatterbrained. <laughs> so even to work, I have to, I can never have one project. I have like, you know, the podcast, I have the magazine, I have even in my own writing, I've got like five different things I'm currently, technically currently writing. Um, but I tend to work in little spurts. So I'll do like a month on one thing and then set it aside and then do maybe a full week on another thing or even just a couple hours here and there. And it's the same with books really. Like, you know, I'm reading Capital, I'm not going to sit down and read capital all at once. So I just haven't got the focus really or the energy uh, or like I want to sit with the ideas and I want to see how they're applied to my life and if they do apply to life and then come back to it a little bit later. And I suppose, yeah, books like fiction is the same. I do really like to immerse myself in books sometimes, but it doesn't really fit in with my life. I might start reading one book and then we start reading, we start recording the podcast and I need to read all 10 of the books we'll do for that series. Um, usually quite quickly, but also then someone gives me a job and I've got to chair an event and then maybe I'm doing three authors. So you want to read all three of their books and then you kind of also want to read a little bit of what they've written in the past if you don't know them, because I think it's just kind of basic respect to be cognizant of the author's work. So it's just like, I don't really often have the ability to just focus on one book at a time. And when I do, it's glorious and I just won't speak to anyone. <laughs> I used to live in Panama City and my partner was from Toronto. And one Christmas we flew from Panama City to Toronto and I read The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt. And it was like, I love being on planes because everyone else has to leave you alone and you put your headphones in and they bring you a drink and you've got nothing else to do. No one can get you on your phone. No one can get, I, I refuse to speak to whoever I'm with. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm reading this book now. And um, yeah, by the time we got to Toronto, it was like 40 degrees colder than it had been in Panama City. So I think my body was in shock. And I just didn't even go out for the evening when we got to Toronto. I just stayed in and finished the book. And that's just lovely, isn't it? That's like a little sort of hug to yourself. Whereas I yeah. think you're a lot more, it sounds like you're just more disciplined and more focused and you like working on one project at one time, right? I just don't think I've got the attention span to... <laughs> I did, the only time I did it actually this, earlier this year, uh, during the lockdown, I, I decided to read War and Peace. And oh, right. Again, because it's such a, a massive book, I, I wanted to take my time with it. So I would read that during the day. And so at night time, I was reading, you know, like either short stories or some non-fiction. I got a book of David Sedaris essays, th things that I could just dip in out that were completely different. That was quite a good contrast. But by and large, I just, one at a time, and that, that's how it works for me. How did you find War and Peace? I've not read it. I loved it. As I was saying to someone... Some of it's like, it's obviously a great historical novel. It tells you of that time when Napoleon invading Russia, but it's a real soap opera. It's a, a real saga to the point where, and the point that clicked into me was that I started to, I was reading it and I was starting to hear the characters talking as if they were like in EastEnders. <laughs> I thought it's just, <laughs> and so once you kind of get into that, it's like, it's a really brilliant story. And I absolutely, I really loved it actually. I'll so, have to give it a go. My knowledge of Russian literature is just really bad. I've read like um, Gogol, who I know is actually Ukrainian, and I've read like The Master and Margarita and things like that. Well, I haven't really read any of the sort of really big grand Russian classics because they're just so long, aren't they, as well? Yeah, and also I, I tried reading Crime and Punishment about four or five times and eventually finished it, but it you know, wasn't, wasn't a great experience. It was, it was okay, but I just found a lot of times in some of the books... The same character had about three different names. It was just different derivatives of the names, which confused me. But for some reason, I think War and Peace was much more easier. It was easier to follow. It was easier to, easier to understand. It was this kind of combination of quite interesting historical, brilliant battle scenes, how he described them, but then just brilliant kind of this domestic saga that was going on at the same time. So, no, it's, I would, I, I'd, certainly it's worth having a go at. I find that with some classic films as well. Like, I, I think I'm not going to like them because of what I think they are. And then you start watching them and they are like, like telenovelas or like soap operas in a way. Like, um, we watched Lawrence of Arabia a couple of years ago and I thought that was going to be some like dusty old boring thing. But it's so, like, there's so much like homoeroticism in it and there's so much kind of like personal drama. And um, yeah, I love those things where you're like, oh my God, this is a really good story. Sometimes I think, you know, it's particularly a lot of old books, they can be quite intimidating, partly just because of the size and just the way they were, they were at the time. But I think once you go over that, then you, you end up discovering things that 
you, you were always aware of the book and you, I was always aware of what it was about, but actually then being able to now be able to say that I've, I've actually, when people say, well, it's not War and Peace, and I'll say, well, I've, I've read War and Peace. I feel like that way about um, Finnegan's Wake. So I read Finnegan's Wake uh, kind of when I was traveling, I think, a few years ago. And again, it's really weird, but it's really funny. Like the way he plays with language is so good and so hilarious. And then I was like, well, I'm going to be able to say I've read Finnegan's Wake. And then I was at a book festival and I sat down with this critic who is incredibly intelligent man. And he was like, oh, yeah, did you pick up the, the four implied characters? And I was like, oh, I did not read this book properly because <laughs> I did not see any of those people. I was just enjoying the kind of like deluge of language. And I wasn't trying to read a plot into it because it's, it's kind of like weird scattered book. But there is a plot if you look for it. I just haven't. But it is nice to have it on the shelf and be like, no, actually, I have read that book. Is that something you do when you you do, you, you mentioned earlier on, I think it was The Alchemist you said, if it was in somebody's bookshelf. Is that something, particularly in maybe the last few months where the amount of people who, when they're on TV, Zoom calls, it's their bookshelf behind them. Do you freeze frame and then have a wee look and see what they've got? Yes, and I think a lot of people have been doing that on the news as well. They've been like freeze framing and seeing what horrible like especially racist books like Tory politicians have got on their bookshelves, which I've been really enjoying. But my main one is looking on people's bookshelves, especially male readers, and pointing out to them if they've got no women on their books, on their bookshelves, because I realised a few years ago when I started doing the blogs that you mentioned that went over like everything I'd read that year, I realised that I was reading something like 75% men. And I think of myself as someone who sort of champions female writing as much as I can, because you know, I am a female writer. I know a lot of them. I love female writing. And I was like, well, why am I reading three quarters men? And I think it's a hangover from doing like a literature degree. And also just like our, the canon of what we think is literature is so heavily skewed towards like straight white men throughout history. So I made a concerted effort to read like 50% split between men and women. And then I was like, well, that means I'm not really reading any trans or like non-binary authors. So I was like, okay, well, I'll I've got to then shift that and I've got to start reading this because I'm not getting all these perspectives. And then I was like, oh, well, look how horribly white my reading list is. So I was like, okay, I've got to start reading more like translated literature, um, British writers of colour. And when you start doing that, you, you start realising how horribly narrow your reading has been. But the one that always gets me, I can go to a male friend's house and sometimes they can have like shelves and shelves and shelves of books and they'll have two women on there. It's like come, I'm not going to let you get away with that anymore. <laughs> so come on, we've got to do something about that. So yeah, I guess I am quite bookshelf judgy now. I think everybody's become like that. So I'm always conscious of, we, we did a lot of podcasts and interviews through work and I was conscious of not putting anything in the bookshelf just in case there was something that somebody would say, what are you reading that for? Nothing that would be offensive or anything, but just I decided I didn't want to be judged. I suppose that's made me really paranoid. I know that on my Zoom now, you can see I've got two Goosebumps books. L.J. Smith's The Forbidden Game, which is like a YA paranormal collection. Nick, I don't know how you say his surname, but it's called Sabrina, the graphic novel. These are not my reading shelves. These are my work shelves. <laughs> so please don't judge me on, on my two Goosebumps books. No, that's fine. That's not, I, won't judge you. I won't judge you at all. We are just about uh, come to the end of the podcast, sadly. It's been really good chatting to you about uh, some of your favourite and not so favourite books. Um, in terms of, you know, we mentioned already just in terms of your writing, I, I take it, I get you, you know, you, you said you're always working in a million and one different projects. I suppose you're kind of keeping your fingers crossed at some point that something will happen with the, the novel that, you've, that you're happy with, that, that you want out in the world. Yeah, so I've got like one that I am in the midst of kind of putting out there. Um, and then I've got one that I first drafted in 2017 now, so oh my god, three years ago, that's kind of um, set on the island of Mingalay, you know, on the west coast. No. It's, um, well, it's an abandoned island. It's kind of like St Kilda, but um, people don't know it quite as much. And then I've got another novel that I started writing at the start of this year. So yeah, I've got a lot of fingers in little different fiction pies. And at some point, hopefully, one of those will be available to buy. <laughs> We'll keep our fingers crossed and, uh, you know, once it's a big success. I, as I say to a lot of writers on the podcast, I'll just ride on the crest of the wave of your success. <laughs> I think we're riding on your crest right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, it's been really nice talking to you, Heather. And thanks it's been a real for, pleasure, Paul. For joining me on the podcast. Thank you.
Thanks so much for inviting me. It's been a delight. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. Keep reading.